Okay, good morning, Boker Tov. I want to thank our sponsors this morning. Once again, uh, sponsored by Drs. Ilana and Juliana Rosenblatt for a Fuhr Shlema for Yisrael Mayor Ben Daphne Burios. Should have a complete and speedy and painless Rafua Shlema. Also, this just in, co sponsored by Gail and Milton Meller in honor of their wedding anniversary. Happy anniversary and many, many more. And uh, lastly, I'll take the personal privilege of saying that our learning this morning is dedicated in the honor of my wife's birthday, which is today. Happy birthday, Yecheven. I, for one, am very happy she was born. Okay, that's enough mushiness for one day. Let's get to the Parsha. Parsha's Vayekra, we begin the third book of the Torah, the book of Torah's Kohanim. It's difficult to go through this book because Torah's Kohanim is filled with a lot of details, minutiae, rules, so many of which are inaccessible or unrelatable to us, directed primarily to the Kohanim, the Avodah of the Mishkan, the Beis HaMikdash, to the service, the sacrifices with which we are sadly so unfamiliar. Please God, speedily in our day we will become familiar once again. But I think that while Sefer Vayikra poses a big problem, big challenge in that way, at the same time, as we spoke about when we talked about the architecture, the design, the dimensions of the Mishkan, at the same time, it's a reminder of Torah's timelessness. That when we study even the book of Vayikra, and we understand the symbolism and the meaning and the themes, and what the Ribbonoshim and what the Almighty was trying to have us achieve and experience, though we may not go through those physical motions, but nevertheless we continue to draw from those themes, the messages and the values and the ideals are timeless. And so rather than have any hesitation to study the book of Vayikra, I think uh, we do so with great excitement. As I've said many uh, years, the book of uh, Vayikra begins with the word Vayikra. The Aleph is small, it's called the Aleph Zeira. We're not going to examine this in depth today. We have several times in the past and you can listen to those online. But the Balaturim says the small Aleph reflects Moshe's humility, which begs the question of the Chassam Sofer. Moshe's been humble since the book of Sefer Shmos. Why did it take an entire book? Why did it take until Vayikra to express that humility that as opposed to the contrast of Bilam, who's arrogant to his access to Hashem, Moshe has this humility, just a small little Aleph. So some services, why, why did it wait till now? What is connection between the book of Vayikra and Moshe's humility that he didn't insist on expressing that humility earlier? I leave that with you as a question. Another interpretation of the Aleph Zira, the small Aleph, I spoke about in Century Village this past Sunday, is the small Aleph stands for the Aluf, Hashem, the one and only, the singular almighty God. Why is it a small Aleph? Because without the Aleph, you can read it Vayikar, which is the Lashon of Mikra, chance, happenstance, randomness. With the Aleph, it means God called. We go through our lives and everything that happens to us in life, and we are invited, we have a choice. We can interpret everything in our life in one of two ways. Either Mikra or Vayikra. Is it chance? Is it happenstance? Is it coincidence or is it Vayikra? Is God calling out to us? The Aleph is small because on the surface, at first glance, it all looks like Mikra. It's chance, it's happenstance, it's coincidence. The Aleph, the small Aleph, you have to go look for the Aleph Zeira. You have to go find the small Aleph. You have to find Hashem who is in fact the one pulling the strings. The choreographer, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, is in fact his providence, is responsible for all that happens. So that's the second interpretation of the small Aleph. The Aleph is the difference between Mikra and Vayikra. Is it chance or is Hashem calling us through what's happening to us? It's hard to sometimes interpret and understand what He's calling. 
we don't actually get, it's not a text message or a WhatsApp or an email, it's not even a voicemail, you don't get to hear directly or explicitly what he's calling. That the burden is on us to analyze, interpret, try to come to a conclusion is what's the message? Why did what just happened to me happen? What am I meant to learn? What am I meant to walk away with? How am I meant to grow from it? Not necessarily correlating it with a punishment. It must be I suffered this because I did that. Hashem can tell us what was a punishment. We also have a concept of Yisur and Shalava. Sometimes Hashem is Machanach. He educates us through the things that happen to us. Sometimes we undergo what feels like a hardship in the moment and it feels like a punishment and only later do we find out what a reward it was. Someone very dear to me applying to a position and thought they got it and it looks like you may not get it. And who knows, it's devastating. In the short term, that feels incredibly devastating. What if in a year or two from now you find out that the job you applied to, that company went under? Or there was some scandal? Or because you didn't get that, you applied to something else and it was an infinitely better job for you? So we don't know why and our mission is to pause, not to feel anxious, not to feel bitter, not to feel resentful. Certainly not to say it's mikra, it's chance, it's happenstance, but rather vayikra. Kodesh Baruch is calling out to us, I need to now give an answer. When someone calls you, it's rude not to answer. So, therefore, we hear the call and we give an answer. That was number two. I wasn't going to talk about Number two thing I wasn't going to talk about. And number three, the small aleph, the Kliyakar tells us, there was a minag, the small aleph represents the children, the little kinder. And we have a Masoro, we have a tradition that children begin to study Chumash, where? The book of Vayagra. So this is all by way of reinforcing that rather than have any hesitation that we're about to begin the third book, it's difficult, it's complicated, it's unrelatable, it's inaccessible, that's Tafka where, where we chose for many centuries, millennia, that children begin to learn with the book of Vayikra. And we've suggested in the past, again I won't elaborate, that specifically the message of Vayikra. Children need to begin their life learning about Judaism by learning Mesiris Nefesh, sacrifice. Not everything is, is coming to you. I just participated recently on a panel at a uh, rabbinic conference and I suggested there that perhaps the pendulum has swung too far in the direction of it's geschmack to be a yid. You know, Rav Moshe famously said many years ago that after the Holocaust, you know, the, the message that many were, were broadcasting to their children and grandchildren of Schwerz is ein yid, it's difficult to be a Jew. So people said, oh, it's so difficult to be a Jew? I'm out of here. Who needs to be a Jew? For many years, when Jews lived in a ghetto, so there was no option, there was no alternative, you couldn't walk away. But now that there's not only the opportunity, but the invitation to walk away, if you emphasize, Shvetz is how difficult it is to be a Jew, it's so difficult, tuition so expensive, kosher meat is so expensive, cleaning for Pesach is so miserable, everything is so difficult, so I'm out of here, who needs it? So he encouraged us, and we have listened, to instead go in the other direction. And today our children are raised singing and dancing, Gishmak to be a yid. It's Gishmak to be a yid. And it is Gishmak to be a yid. Shabbos is so beautiful and Yantaf is so amazing. Kashras makes us so disciplined. It's elevating, it's enriching, it's amazing, it's outstanding. But I humbly suggest that maybe we've gone too far in the other direction. Because now we've raised a generation of children who say, it's supposed to be Gishmak to be a yid, but you know, that's not so Gishmak for me. So I'm out of here. I'm done. They're walking away, not because of the Schwert design of Yid, they're walking away because it's supposed to be Geshmak. And why isn't it Geshmak? I often tell that I was speaking to a group of uh, teenage boys whom I noticed leave the, left their tefillin in school over the weekend. They weren't praying about it on Sunday. And I talked to them about tefillin and I told them over this tshuva in Rav Oshri's Mimamakim, the, he was the Rav of the Kovna Ghetto and he answered 
just mind-boggling questions of, of spiritual resistance and heroism. And he was asked by an 11-year-old boy in the ghetto who said, likely I'm never going to live to my bar mitzvah. I'll not make it. But my whole life I've watched men put on tefillin. I've always wanted to wear tefillin. I want the experience of binding myself to Hashem, my heart, my head, transforming, elevating the mundane, the animal into the spiritual. I want to know what that's like. Even though I'm only 11 years old, Rebbe, this was his question in the Kovna ghetto, not ha- where is God, why is there God, why is this happening? His only question was, even though I'm only 11, I'll probably never become bar mitzvah, can I start wearing tefillin now? So I shared this with this group of young teenagers, trying to inspire them that, wow, look at us, we're so lucky and fortunate, we can wear tefillin so freely. Isn't it amazing? And the kid said, nah, tefillin doesn't do anything for me. I said, well, don't, don't you feel responsible to do something even when it doesn't do something for you? Because your father, your grandfather, your great-grandfather for generations and generations, don't you want your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren to wear tefillin? Don't you think that wearing tefillin binds us not only to Hashem, but to a shashelas, to a chain of continuity? And even though it doesn't do anything for you, okay, a little kid says brushing my teeth doesn't do anything for me, but you still have to brush your teeth. Don't you think you should wear... Nah, doesn't do anything for me. I don't do it. I only do things that do things for me. So, we teach children, we begin with Sefer Vayikra, because I think we've got to swing back in the other direction a little bit and find a happy medium. It's not Shreya designed to be a Yid. It's not so miserable and difficult and hard. It's amazing. It's joyous. It's uplifting. It's enriching. It's joyful. It's fantastic. We love to be a Jew. It's Gishmak. But you know what? Sometimes it's not Gishmak. It's not always Gishmak. It's not always Gishmak to clean for Pesach. It's not always Gishmak to cut that check to the day school. It's not always Gishmak to use up your vacation days for Yantif. It's not always gishmak to wake up early when you want to sleep in. It's not always, it is gishmak to be a yid, but vayikra, korbanos. You got to be willing to make sacrifices. It's no wonder that our younger, you came for a Parsha class, not my editorial on life, so we'll get back to the Parsha. But it's no wonder that some of the younger generation who were raised with that sense of pampering and, and love and helicopter parenting and everything, you should just be happy and get pleasure. So what happens when they're in a relationship and they're asked to make a sacrifice? I know you want to eat fleshics, but I want to go for milchiks. I know you want to go here on vacation, I want to go there. I know you want to go to sleep, but I want you to stay up with the baby or change the diaper. Or what happens when you have to make a sacrifice in a relationship if you're raised that you should never have to sacrifice anything? You should never have to give up anything. You should always be happy and have pleasure. And the teacher is always wrong and this one's always wrong. You're always right. You should always be happy and have pleasure and have everything you need and everything you want. How is that child going to have a successful marriage, a successful relationship, when the core of a relationship is sacrifice? You can't yell at the newborn baby, I want to sleep. Your problem. Change your own diaper. Feed yourself. <laughs> if you want continuity, literally human continuity, you have to be willing to make sacrifices. Why do we make those sacrifices? To stay up at night. Why do we make those sacrifices? Because it's worth it. That's where the real joy, the gishmak, the geshmak is not a full night's sleep. The geshmak is raising, bringing a newborn baby into this world and raising them into a, a human being. So that's Vayikra. That's why we started. It's the small Aleph. And now that's what I'm not going to talk about this morning. So, but the next Pasuk. This is not only the introduction to the entire book of Vayikra, this is the mission statement of what it means to be a Jew. This is Mamish, the mission statement of being a Jew. Adam kiyakrev korban. Kiyakrev mikem korban lashem. A person brings a sacrifice. Why do you sacrifice? 
What's the goal of sacrificing? See, unlike other religions, we don't believe in sacrificing for suffering's sake. Nobody died on our behalf or to atone for our sins. There's no such thing as suffering for suffering's sake. What is the purpose of a karbon? Rafer says, what's the root of the word karbon? Karov, kuf reish base. The purpose, the goal of a karbon, you sacrifice because it will bring you closer to the person for whom you have sacrificed. You sacrifice for your child because that's what makes you love your child more than your child could ever love you. Rav Deslo's kuntras achesed, a parent loves a child more than a child could ever love a parent because love is the result of giving, love is not the result of receiving. Parents give children infinitely more than children can or will ever give parents, even as good as those children are to parents, even towards the end of parents' life when they pay it back. Still, the parent gives the child more, loves the child more. The more we sacrifice, the closer we are. The greater the karban, the more karov we are. The more we sacrifice. Ribona Shalom, I want to do ABC, but you told me I have to do XYZ. I'm sacrificing. Not in some suffering servant type of way. I'm sacrificing because I'm invested in this relationship with you. So when I had to give things up as an affirmation, as a com- statement of my commitment to you, the result of a karban, of making a sacrifice, is karov. I feel close. A spouse sacrifices, compromises, gives something up to put the other person's need ahead of their own. And what's the result? Karban is karov. It's exactly the opposite too. If you're unwilling to bring a karban, you don't feel karov, you feel rachok. If you're not willing to sacrifice when asked, if you're not willing to compromise, you're not willing to give, then not only do you not feel closer, you now feel distanced, you now feel further from children, marriage, with Hashem. Our whole relationship with Hashem is just like our other relationships in life. We often forget that. We think it's about the minutia and the details and the checklist, check, check, did this, didn't do that, check, check, check. It's not a checklist, it's a relationship. There's love, there's commitment, there's compromise, there's communication. It's a relationship. So where does this relationship come from? Adam Kiyakriv, where are you sacrificing? What are you sacrificing? What and where you're sacrificing from is? Mikem. It's from us. That word Mikem is extraneous. You don't need it. It should just say Adam Kiyakriv, Karban Lashem, if a person brings a sacrifice. Why is the word Mikem here? What does the word Mikem mean? Mikem means that you're not going to be close to Hashem because you spent money on the ox or the bull or the goat or the ram. You don't become close to Hashem because you discharge the obligation, the physical obligation of bringing the korban. Where does the korban ultimately really have to come from? What is the most genuine commitment? When it's Mikem, inside us, who we are. I'm molding and shaping my personality. Kadosh Baruch Hu, I am creating my identity around you. The carbon is coming from inside me. We spoke about recently in Siddur Snippets. The recitation of Karbanos every single morning, that we are as if we brought sacrifices by reading the sacrifices. Why are we reading them every morning? Is it barbaric and archaic and outdated? What are we reading about sacrifices? It's 2019. We're still talking about sacrificing things? The answer is yes. What was the symbolism or first described? You took the animal inside. When you, when you took the physical animal and slaughtered it, you were saying to Hashem, and even more importantly saying to yourself, I'm taking the animal impulse, the animal instinct, the animal drive in me, and I'm sacrificing the animal in me. In this battle, in the conflict between the animal in me and the Tzalem Elohim, I'm committed that the Tzalem Elohim will triumph, will win, will rule the day. And I'm purging, I'm getting rid of the animal impulse inside me. So I could just offer the korban 
And then while the Kohen's bringing the carbon, I'm schmoozing some good lush and hara. While he's bringing the carbon, I'm busy thinking about how I'm going to indulge in this material and physical pleasure and this material and physical decadence and this material and physical corruption. Then you're not bringing it mikem. In fact, later when the Beis HaMikdash is destroyed, the Navi tells us, Lama li yomar Hashem. We read in the summer around Tishabov. When we read the tragedy, the Navi says, Lamali I don't need your empty acts. I don't need your empty lip service. Don't read empty words you don't mean, and don't do empty acts that you don't really believe. Like you, you get to hand your wife a dozen roses. Here, I got you the roses. But meanwhile, you're going to be cruel and harsh and insensitive, unwilling to compromise and to sacrifice. But I gave you the roses. She says, The roses are nice, but I want Mikem. I want your heart. I want what's inside you. I want you. I want a relationship. So Adam Kiyakrev, where the carbon has to come from, is Mikem. And Rabbi Salavitchik points out, that's why the Pasuk continues. From animals, from cattle, from flock, you bring your sacrifice. Why does the Torah use the apparently superfluous words from animals when it later says cattle are from sheep? Why does it say mina behema? Behema is a generic, animals. Then it gets specific. Bakar itzon. So if you're going to say the generic, leave it at that. If you're going to say the specifics, why do you need to introduce it with the generic? So Rabbi Salavitchik answers to indicate that man is separated from animals and is elevated over other creatures in that he engages in self-sacrifice. Who knows that the spirit of the children of men, quotes a passage from Kohelas, the soul of man which lifts its eyes and gazes on high to far distances to the future prepares to sacrifice for it. This is the spirit of the children of men, is that which ascends on high. Adam Kiyakrav Mikem Korban, one who sacrifices himself. What it means is, it's not that the, there's two ways to read this Pasuk. You hear what the Rav is saying? It's not that bring a sacrifice and where do you take the sacrifice from? From an animal or from, uh, or from uh, cattle or from flock. What, what the Pasuk is saying is why? It's not what, but why? Adam Kiyakrav Mikem. Why are you bringing a korban? Min ha because you're greater than an animal. Min ha means you, you're above an animal. Isn't that a beautiful interpretation? He's reinterpreting the Pasuk. That min ha doesn't mean from the category of animal, like Tzon Ubakar. What it means is, Adam Kiyakrav Mikem Karban Lashem. When you're willing to sacrifice, you know what you're tapping into? Your uniquely human character. When you're willing to compromise, when you're willing to give, when you're willing to be Moser Nefesh, when you're willing to do things even when it does nothing for you. Taking out the garbage doesn't do anything for me. Why do I have to take it out? Why do I have to take it out? When you're willing to do things when they don't do anything for you, then you're Min HaBehema, you're better than an animal. Because the whole nature of an animal, the whole definition of an animal is an animal only does what it wants, when it wants, where it wants, with whom it wants. An animal has an in, animal impulse, an animal instinct, an animal drive. The animal doesn't have self-awareness and the animal certainly is not prepared to sacrifice. I know there's going to be dog lovers in here. You're going to email me afterwards. You don't know what my dog sacrifices for my happiness, snuggles with me and sits with me and brings me the newspaper. You just, that's Pavlovian. You've just trained your animal to have the response to bring you the newspaper. I'm not saying your dog, your dog loves you, your dog absolutely does love you. I agree, animals do have feelings and you communicate those feelings. There is such a thing as an animal soul. I'm not denying that the animal has a soul. The animal has a soul. We have an animal soul. But on top of that, we have a godly soul. The nefesh is the animal soul. The neshama is the tzemel kim, is the uniquely godly human soul. The animal soul has no self-awareness. 
No dog ever says, I better lay off that dog food, I'm not going to fit into these jeans. <laughs> no animal ever says, you know, before I'm with that female animal in the backyard, I should take her out for dinner, and I should get to know her, and I should really see if she's in a relationship with someone else. An animal has no self-awareness, and an animal is unwilling to self-sacrifice. The animal doesn't sacrifice. The animal has an impulse and an instinct and a drive, and the animals, it's survival of the fittest. The animal doesn't say, I'm willing to sacrifice, I really want the whole dog bowl, but there's another dog and I've got to share it, so I'll eat half, and even though it'll leave me hungry, I'm sacrificing so you could also be hungry. An animal has an impulse, it wants to eat, it eats until there's nothing left, or until its belly is full. So, min ha doesn't mean you're going to bring the sacrifice from an animal, it means when you sacrifice, you're better than an animal. Which also means the inverse is true. If you're a selfish, self-centered, egotistical person and you're never willing to sacrifice, it's your way or the highway, everybody's got to conform to what you want, then you're no better than an animal. You're no better than an animal. You haven't conquered your ego. You're unwilling to be able to put someone else first. It's always got to be your way or the highway, then you're not minha behema. You're just another behema. You're an animal. You're an animal itself. So this is our mission statement. Adam ki yakrav mikem. We are bringing the carbon. Where is it coming from? It's coming from Mikem. Now it's interesting. What word is used to introduce this concept? Adam. Adam ki of Mikem. What word might you have expected? Adam is an unusual word to use here. What word would you think to have here? Ish. Ish. The Torah, when it teaches halacha, much more commonly uses the word ish. And yet here it doesn't say ish ki of Mikem. It says... Why do you think that is? Why does the Torah deviate from the norm of using Ish and instead describe Adam? I'm glad you asked. The Ksav Sofer, I mentioned this last week, I spoke in New York on the topic of extreme ownership, of taking extreme ownership in our lives, of taking Achrayas. And in that context, I shared the Ksav Sofer from our Parsha. The Ksav Sofer in our Parsha says the following... You obviously don't have it in front of you, but I'll share a little bit of it with you. Isab Medrash Tanchumi quotes the Medrash. Lamanem are Adam Kiyakriv. Why does it say Adam? And not Ish. Lomar to teach us the following. If you made a mistake, why do you bring a korban? You're trying to repair the damage done from a mistake. You had poor judgment. You gave in to the animal instinct. You, you had an indiscretion. You gave in to temptation. And nobody is above it. Nobody is above it. Nobody's above it. Anyone who thinks they've conquered the Yetzirah, absolutely nobody's above it. Nobody's above it. I, I just saw this morning, and I'm not going to get into details, and you shouldn't go home and Google it, but a, a prominent Rav, a prominent Dayan, not from the United States of America, in another country, sent a letter of resignation from the Beisden and resigned from his shul. And he very mysteriously just talked about that he had failed to live up to the ideals and whatever. And other people conjecture what that means. But I, I'd met this prominent Rav, a big Tamachacham and a very uh, seemingly Ehrlicha person, a wonderful person. And it's a reminder, none of us are above the law, none of us are immune. Everybody. In fact, Chazal saw it the opposite. The greater you are, the more susceptible and vulnerable you are. The more knowledge and character and creativity that you have, the more vulnerable you are. If you're a person that has passion pouring, pulsating through your veins, and that produces... In a contribu- and contributes in a positive way, then that passion also puts you at great risk. And some of our greatest Tanakh personalities remind us of that. So we're all vulnerable. None of us are immune. 
In fact, being greater in Torah doesn't make you less immune. It makes you, in fact, even greater at risk, and therefore you have to take even more precautions. It's so important in our world to have these protective notion of an Isra of Yichud and, and an emphasis on modesty, not an overemphasis on modesty, but a moderate, appropriate emphasis on modesty, because none of us are immune. So the Ksav Sofer of Shmuel bin Yaman Sofer in the 19th century says, why does it say Adam not Ish? Because, you know, at our core, every time we make a mistake, every time we give in to that voice of temptation, every time we have poor judgment, every time we've crossed the line, it's because we've given in to the inner Adam Harishon inside us. Adam was the first to make a mistake. Adam was the first to make a mistake. Now interestingly, Adam and Chava are not punished when they make a mistake. They're not. Why? Because Yetzir Leva Adam Ramin Urav. We all are programmed. Hashem designed us with a virus. He put that voice of temptation inside of us on purpose. It's what gives meaning to life. That when we confront that voice and we have to triumph over it is what gives life meaning. So, Kodesh Baruch Hu is not punished, does not mete out punishment to Adam and Chava when they make a mistake. You know when he punishes them? When they fail to take responsibility. He says, hey Adam, anything you want to tell me? Remember that one rule I gave you and anything you want to share with me? Nope, nothing to share. Sure, it was her fault. <laughs> Chava, remember the one rule I gave you everything, you don't even have to work. You're retired from the day you're born. Unlimited all you can eat shmord called Gan Eden. You've got everything you need. I just said one little thing I said don't do. Anything you want to tell me? It was the snake's fault. The whole story of the beginning of Torah is the story of a refusal to take ownership. The, the refusal to take responsibility. That's when a Kodesh Baruch says, hmm, you made a mistake, I confronted you. If you would have said, I made a mistake, I'm so sorry, couldn't help myself, we could have worked it out. But you fail to take ownership, you're out. Expelled from Gan Eden, you're done. The next story of Cain and Havel. Cain kills Havel. Kodesh Baruch comes to Cain and he says, have any idea where I might find Cain? And what does Havel say? Yeah, there's something I got to tell you about Cain. We had a little bit of a fight. No, he says, Hashem Anachi, what do I do? How do I know where my brother is? What am I now responsible for my brother? Kodesh Baruch doesn't punish Cain when he kills Havel. Such an egregious such an egregious mistake, such a irreparable mistake. That's not when Hashem punishes Cain. When does he punish Cain? When Cain says, hmm, not my fault, not my responsibility, not my problem. Kodesh Baruch can tolerate mistakes, he can't tolerate when we don't take responsibility for them. He says the Ksav Sofer, that's why it says Adam Ki Yakriv. Bringing a karbon is taking responsibility and owning up to a mistake. You come to the base of Mikdash, you spend an exorbitant amount of money to buy an animal, you take off of work, if you, know, if you happen to live in the old city of Yerushalayim, it wasn't so inconvenient. But if you lived in the Golan or the Galil or the Negev in Israel, or you lived in Boca Raton and you had to bring a car bun, you had to take off work and buy a ticket and make your way. You had to buy an exorbitant sum for a, an entire animal. And you had to bring it to the base of Mikdash. And what that was all about was taking responsibility, owning up to the mistake. And that's why it's a reminder, not Ish, but Adam. Just like Adam originally made a mistake, that propensity for making a mistake in us comes from the Adam in us. Adam refused to take responsibility or own up. We take responsibility by coming and bringing the korban. That's what he says is, is the whole notion that's going on over here. And then he elaborates. And then he elaborates. And exactly along the lines of this... Uh, 
Ksav Sofer is an insight of the Kliyakar towards the end of the Pasha. Skip with me towards the end of the Pasha, then we're going to come back. Then we're going to come back. I guess so much to say. You're not going to believe me, but every Tuesday at 9.29 I say, I don't have enough to fill the whole shield. What am I going to talk about? It's going to be embarrassing. I'm going to end early. This could be the last year. They won't come back again. I, that actually is a conversation that happens in my head every week. Believe it or not. Believe it or not. So if you go towards the end of the parsha, go to Perak Hay, Pasuk Chav Gimel. Perak Hay, Pasuk Chav Gimel. In fact, go to Perak Hey Pasachaf. I want you to hold that thought of the Ksav so far. You see why I'm going to skip to the Kliyakar we're going to see. But I want to see the Kliyakar in context. So hold that thought. And you'll see how it stims, how it works very nicely with the, with the Kliyakar that we're going to see in a moment. The Pasach says, God spoke to Moshe saying, What page are we in the Yard Scroll? 566. Thank you. The very end of the parsha, in the art scroll, stone chumash. Hentges here today, so we say stone. Page 566. Perek hey pasuk Hashem spoke to Moshe, and he said the following: Nefesh kisechta umala mal b'Hashem achichish ba'amisa b'pikadam b'sumisyad or begazol or ashakah isamisa. Hashem spoke to Moshe and said, "Here's the following. Here's the rule: If a person made a mistake and they committed a ma'al meila." which here Art Scroll is translating as treachery. They, they um, violate something that should have been holy against Hashem. How did they do it? Chichesh ba'amisa. They lied to a fellow man. But pikadon yad. There was a pledge. They pledged to give a certain amount of money, then they claimed they gave it. Or there's a loan where they claim that they repaid it or they never borrowed it. Or a robbery where they said they don't know where it is. Or by defrauding his uh, fellow man. Ashak es amiso. Or they found a lost item, but instead of returning it to its owner or declaring that they found this lost item, they kept it to themselves. And when challenged, they lied. Right? So the common denominator of all these examples is there's a financial benefit. A person should have been transparent, come clean, shared the truth, but lied. Swore falsely about any of these things that a person can do, and he made a chait made a mistake, or what we'd call a sin. So what's the rule? When he sins and he becomes guilty, he has to return the item he robbed, or he has to give back the proceeds of the fraud, or the pledge that was left with him, he was guarding something and he claimed he wasn't, he's got to give it back, or the lost item he found, he's got to get it back to its rightful owner. Or he lied, Someone said, I need you to testify in court that I'm owed money because I know you were a witness and you saw it and you lied. So in all these cases, you have to pay back the principal and add a fifth to it. There's a penalty. In addition to paying back the principal of what you stole, you also have to pay a penalty. On the day that you were guilty. And you bring a, and you bring a korban. A guilt offering. An unblemished ram of the proper value, and it is a guilt offering because you were guilty, you did something wrong. The Kohen provides him with a kapara, you are forgiven, you get atonement before Hashem, and you're forgiven for all the things that you did that might have incurred guilt. An ayel is the most expensive korban. You bring a ram, 
Just like the, the section that precedes the, this is Nefesh Kisechta is the story of the is the story of the uh, Nefesh Kisechta Hashem is the Asham Talay where you're not sure if you sinned or not. Where you bring a, a Korban Asham where you're not sure. If you know that you sinned if it's by mistake you bring a Korban Chatas. You bring a Korban Asham for something that if you did intentionally, you'd get kares. If you did unintentionally, you'd bring chatas, but you don't know whether you did it or not. So for example, he brings, the Gemara brings, uh, increases the example that you had a piece of, uh, you had a plate, you had a platter, and it had two pieces of meat, fat on meat. One was a forbidden fat, chilev, and one is a permissible fat, shuman. And you ate one of the pieces, but you don't know which one was the forbidden one, which one was the permissible one. So you have to bring a carbon, which is a, Kind of um, provisional. Any golfers here? You know, you hit a ball on the tee and you're not sure if you're going to find it or not, so you hit a provisional. So it's a provisional korban. The provisional korban is I'm not sure whether I did something wrong or not. So in case I did something wrong, I bring the provisional, the provisional korban. It's interesting because the Torah doesn't call it provisional. The Torah says, for the asham, the guilt that you did. Why is it saying that you did something wrong if you're not even sure that you did something wrong? So the Svarna says, you know why it's saying that? Because you're going to be kind of resentful having to bring a carbon if you're not even sure you did something wrong. So we want to make clear that you did do something wrong. What was the wrong thing that you did? You were careless. If you don't even know whether the piece of meat you ate was the forbidden fat or the permissible fat, so you didn't necessarily do something wrong by consuming the wrong fat, that you don't know. But you did something wrong in that you consumed something without knowing what it was. Your carelessness is a form of guilt. For that alone, you're bringing this carbon. The Kotzkar asks... Why in a case of doubt are you bringing the most expensive sacrifice, the ayah, the ram? I would expect that in the case of absolute guilt, when you know you did something wrong, that's when you bring the most expensive sacrifice. If you're not sure, it's just a provisional sacrifice, you're not sure, that's when you should bring the less expensive one. So the Kotzker says, the Kotzker says, because when you're sure that you did something wrong, you don't need to spend money on an expensive sacrifice. Your guilt comes from inside you. The guilt doesn't have to be in the offering. The guilt is inside you. You know you did something wrong. You feel guilty about it. But when you're not sure if you did something wrong, we're going to get back to this too, we have a predisposition when we're not sure if we did something wrong to justify our behavior, to explain our behavior, to excuse our behavior. So you'll say, I'm not sure if I did something wrong. I don't even know why I really have to bring an ashram to begin with. Fine, I'll bring the ashram. What's the least I can get away with? What's the least I have to spend? That's when we make you bring the aisle, the expensive ram, because we don't want you to reconcile or justify or defend your behavior in your head. On the tzad, on the side that you really did do something wrong, we want you to pledge to be more mindful and conscientious going forward. So that was the previous section. That brings us to this section where there's some financial indiscretion, impropriety, you lied about. You have to pay back not only the principal, but you also have to pay back the a fifth. You have to add a fifth as a penalty on top of it. So let's go through some of the Mephoshim here on this. So Rashi says on Pasuk Chafalaf, Nefesh ki If a nefesh did a chait. Isn't it interesting? It's the nefesh that does the chait. What did we say before? The human being has two souls. At least two souls. Maybe more. But one of the souls we have is an animal soul. So what did the chait here? Not the neshama, but nefesh ki the reason that you made this mistake, chait means mistake, what drove you to this mistake is because you were ignoring your neshama and you were listening to your nefesh. 
the animal soul inside you said, ooh, I could pocket a little extra money. Hmm, I've been dying to get this new iPhone, iPad, piece of jewelry. I'll just keep the thing I found. Ooh, I can't... You're nefesh. It's the animal soul that drove you to the mistake, not your neshama. Nefesh ki sechta. Rashi says, Omar b'kiva, matam b'lomar mo'a ma'a ba'ashem, v'shikol ma'a v'alo v'anosu 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 Says Rashi, bothered by the following question. If you stole something from a friend, what does that have to do with God? Why are you bringing a sacrifice? Why are you apologizing to God? What did you do to God? What did you do to God? You stole from your friend... You ruined your own integrity and reputation. What'd you do to God? Why do you got to bring a sacrifice? Why do you have to bring a sacrifice to God? So Rashi tells us, you know why you have to bring a sacrifice to God? Because when you lend, and there's a contract and there's witnesses, so the witnesses can hold you accountable. But because you did what you did without witnesses and without a contract, you thought that you'd be able to get away with it. But you need to know that there's always a witness. And the witness may not sign his name on a document, but the witness is always watching everything that's happening is the Almighty. And when you stole or you manipulated the system or you cut corners or you cheated, you were offending not only your fellow man, but you were offending the great witness who sees all, you were offending Hashem Himself. The Shlishi Shebeneim, Kodesh who's always present. So Nefesh Ki Sechta Ma'al Bashem. We even use the language here, Ma'al Ma'al Bashem. You're doing a form of Me'ila. What's Me'ila? Me'ila is when you've declared something hectish, when you sanctify something and make it consecrated property, and then you use it for personal gain, you violate me'ila. I dedicate this chair to the Beis HaMikdash, and then I go sit on the chair and read the paper. That's me'ila. I violated me'ila. It's a very, very serious, very serious uh, mistake, me'ila. So why are we using the word me'ila here? Because I found something and I didn't put up a note if anybody lost their keychain. I kept it for myself because I always liked that keychain. Why is that me'ila? That's what Rashi is saying. It's me'ila because you're challenging not only your fellow man, but what you're doing is terrible to Hashem. The Balaturim says also, The only people who know the truth about this are your friend from whom you've stolen and Hashem. So you have violated your friend and Hashem. Rabbi Salavitchik has a beautiful comment here. He says, if a person sins betraying Hashem by falsely denying to his fellow, he quotes the Tosefta from Shavuos. It tells the story of Rabbi Hananiah ben Chachinai, who said it's written that one sins against Hashem when he falsely denies having stolen from his neighbor. Why? Since one does not steal from his neighbor unless he also denies the existence of Hashem. The rabbis apparently did not understand why the Torah employed the word betraying the Lord, Ma'al Bashem, in reference to one who embezzles funds from his neighbor. They answered that... Where there is real faith in Hashem, there could be no social immorality, no embezzlement, no embezzlement, no perjury. Stealing, embezzling, and perjury are a result of a secular ethic, of a man who wants to build his own moral world and to be the legislator of a moral law which he himself has created. In other words, in other words, if you have real amuna in Hashem, if you believe in God, if you have bitachon, that everything that you have is from Hashem, and Hashem gives you everything you need, you would never steal. You'd never embezzle, you'd never cut corners. When you embezzle, when you steal, when you cut corners, you're denying that Kosh Baruch is in charge of the world. You're trying to circumvent His system and access things that don't belong to you. Hashem determines what we each get and what we each need. We have ambition, we have drive, 
We try to do well in life, but at the end of our honest ambition, whatever we have is what we need and what we deserve. And when we embezzle or lie or cheat, we haven't only stolen from our friend. We have essentially declared that we don't believe there's a God. So a person steals or embezzles or perjures himself, they haven't just done so to fellow man, we've knocked Hashem out of the equation. It's ma'ala ma'al b'ashem chichesh ba'amito. Chichesh ba'amito, we've denied it to our friend, but we're ma'al ma'al b'ashem. Kodesh Baruch put us in this world, I think also the significance of the word me'ila. This is my suggestion. Significance of the word me'ila in this context is, all the material objects and possessions in this world are meant to be used for a holy purpose. They may not technically carry the status of hektish, but they're meant to be used to advance holy mission. When we use it in an unholy way, then we've done me'ilah. Just like when I dedicate a chair to the base of Mikdash and then I sit on it, I've done me'ilah. If I take things that are meant to be used in an honest way, and I embezzle, I cheat, I perjure, I steal, then I've done me'ilah. The whole world is Hashem's sacred stage. And when I take away its sacredness, its sanctity, by using it in an inappropriate, in an unethical way, I've done me'ilah. I've done me'ilah. So all that I have and all that I encounter and all that I try to amass and accumulate, I do in order to advance the agenda of holiness, to repair Hashem's world, to transform, to elevate it towards holiness. When I do it because I serve my ego, my honor, my sense of self, my appetite, and I cheat or steal to do it, ma'la ma'bashem. That is a form of me'ila. The Tosefta continues with a very strange story. Rav Ruven once spent the Shabbos in Tveria. He met a philosopher who asked him a question. Who is to be held in contempt and hated? Whom should society consider a contemptible creature? Rav Ruven answered that society should hate the atheist, the agnostic, the skeptic, one who denies the existence of his maker. The philosopher didn't understand. How is this so? Why should a non-believer be held in contempt and hate? Isn't faith the private affair of the individual? His skepticism is not harmful to society. Rav Ruven answered, Honor your father and mother, don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't steal. There is no man who can violate these precepts unless he has denied the existence of his maker. The philosopher had expected Rav Ruven to answer, said Rabbi Soloveitchik, that only, only the fiends of society, the arch-criminals who inflict harm upon others, deserve to be hated, but not the innocent agnostic or atheist. The answer to the philosopher's question came swiftly and unequivocally. The absence of faith in God will eventually lead to the breakdown of, so- of social morality. Corruption of man is ushered in by the lack of faith in God. The crux of social ethics is faith in the transcendental personal Hashem, who expects man to imitate him. At the beginning, the skeptic said that the commandment, I am Hashem, your God, are socially irrelevant. It's possible to organize a society in the foundation of a man-made morality. They finally realized that without I am Hashem, your God, man forfeits his ethical sensitivity and becomes oblivious to the most elementary principles of morality. It's a very, very bold statement, but it's what Artosefta says. If you remove Hashem from the equation, let me put it to you a little bit differently, to unpack this insight from the Rav. Let me put it to you a little bit differently. Without believing in an objective morality, if you subscribe to relativism, moral relativism, that everything's relative, there is no right and wrong. There is no right and wrong. Why do we universally believe certain moral things? Murder is wrong. We say killing is permissible in self-defense. Killing in the context of an army is permissible. But murder is wrong. Who decides what's killing and what's murder? Stealing to save a life that's moral, stealing for yourself is immoral, unethical. What determines what's moral, what's ethical? Is it relative? Is it society? Do we do it 
democratically? Do we vote and enough people determine that that's moral, that's what makes something moral? How do we, this is part of a much bigger conversation, not for now, but what determines morality? If it's the result of voting, Hitler was voted in democratically. The Nazi party was voted in democratically. And if Hitler, democratically elected and with the support of the democracy who voted him in, felt that killing six million Jews was not, in fact, murder, but was killing because you were protecting society somehow. If you don't believe in an absolute morality, an objective morality, who are you to say that that was wrong? We all instinctively know in our kishkas that that's wrong. But by what right do we have to tell someone else it's wrong? A. Certainly, what right do we have to intervene? So I think the United States of America, when it intervenes, maybe not often enough, across the globe, when it sees genocide or immoral acts, is essentially subscribing to an absolute morality. Because if it was a moral relativism, and this was just our interpretation of morality, by what right or license do we have to impose our morality on another? Put differently, what flavor ice cream you like is not absolute. I could like chocolate, you could like vanilla. It's an opinion. It's a taste. It's relative. You like vanilla, I like chocolate. Are you wrong? Am I right? Am I wrong? Are you right? We both agree that it's a relative. Taste is a relative position. And that's your taste. That's my taste. I can't impose chocolate ice cream on you. You can't impose vanilla ice cream on me. Anything that you conclude is relative, is determined by man, is reached from a democratic vote, one doesn't have a right to impose on another. So you'll say, well, in America, we democratically voted that these laws are in place, and now there's a social contract that we all have to live by that we won't steal, we won't murder. That's true. That's true. And if I choose to be a citizen of a country that has that social contract, I'm bound by that social contract, even if it's relative. But what right does my social contract, my country have, to impose our will on those who are not citizens of our country? What right would America have had to bomb the tracks to Auschwitz if not for the fact that there's something called an absolute objective morality. As I said, it's a much bigger discussion, but I think it's what Rebetzalovitchik is driving at. I think it's what the Tosefta meant. The only way that we can have a world that's truly moral, or that we can impose morality on the world, is when you subscribe to an arbiter of that absolute morality. And there can be only one arbiter of absolute or objective morality who has to be greater than all of the finite people. It has to be God. So when you believe in God, then you can create a moral society. Now, that too is not simple because many have murdered in the name of God. And different societies each claim to speak in the name of God. So that's not so simple either. But in principle, philosophically, only when you subscribe to an absolute morality can you impose it on others and can you create a universal uh, a universal code of an absolute morality. So anyway, that's this mala mal bashem. That if you steal, if you embezzle, if you perjure, if you lie, if you cheat, if you cut corners, you've not just hurt your fellow men. You've actually violated Hashem's trust in why He put us in this world and gave us access to the material physical possessions. They are to be used in the pursuit of the sacred. And when we cheat, steal, lie, embezzle, we've actually used them for the mundane. We have, we have violated mi'ilah. There's a lot more on this, but I want to get to that Kliyakar I was driving at. So first the Kliyakar in Pasach Havalov says, Nefesh kisechto umolama bashen, kam hiktim chait l'me'ila, uvigezel hektash hiktim me'ila l'chait, and he goes through that. But if you look at the second paragraph in the Kliyakar, he writes the following, 
the Kliyaka reads homiletically this whole Pasuk. As the notion, someone gave you something to watch, and you deny and lie that he didn't give it to you, and then when you're not prepared to return it, and therefore you have to be punished and penalized. And he said, all this is a metaphor for our neshama, which every night Hashem entrusts, which every day Hashem entrusts to us, and we are supposed to watch over. And when we don't use it for the purpose as the steward that we're designated to be, then we have violated his trust. We've lied. We've inappropriately, inappropriately acted with it. But it's the next Kliyakar that I want to get to. It's on Pasuch Gimel. If a person sins and is guilty. Isn't that redundant? Yechtev Asham, your sin and you're guilty. What is the Kliyakar saying? Perish Rashi. Rashi says it means you made a mistake and the guilt is what you feel that now you're motivated to repair, to do tshuva. Why does a person make mistakes? Because we don't feel guilty. We don't take extreme responsibility. This is why I got to this. We're back to that Ksav Sofer. But Adam Arishon and Cain and Hevel and why it says Adam instead of Ish. So we did the opening Pasuk of the Parsha and the last Pasuk of the Parsha and we'll count it as if we did the whole Parsha. But why does it say Adam, not Ish? Because Adam was the first to fail to take responsibility and take ownership. And says the Kliyakar, that's why it's Kiyechte V'asham. The purpose of a Korban is that when you make a mistake, V'asham, feel guilty. Take responsibility. Own up. Derech Ish Yasha Be'inav Ki Humor La'atzmo Heter B'chodrochav a person's atzmo. We don't take ownership. We say, really, it's okay in this circumstance because. Really, now it's not wrong because. Really, it's not my fault if only I had another parent and my spouse and the children and my fourth grade teacher and my rabbi and the, it's really the policeman and my boss has it in for me and the, really, it's everybody else's fault. <laughs> You can't begin to become karov. You can't begin to bring the karbon. Kiyechte doesn't bring you the karbon. It's kiyechte v'asham. It's not that you made the mistake. Making the mistake and bringing the karbon, but while you're bringing the karbon, you're bringing the karbon because you have to, but really you're still saying, it's his fault, it's her fault, it's the other person's fault, it's the way I was made, it's in my genetics, it's my... Thing. You have every excuse under the sun. You fail to feel v'asham. Kiyecht is not enough. It's not enough to have a sincere karbon that Hashem really accepts. It has to be kiyecht v'asham. You have to feel not only that you made a mistake, but v'asham you have to be willing to confront the feeling of guilt. You have to take extreme ownership. You have to take responsibility for that big mistake, for that big mistake that was made. So this is the principle that drives Karbanos, the idea of taking personal responsibility. The Balatanya said that was the end of the story of Adam and Chava. HaKosh Baruch calls to Adam and he says, Ayeka, hey Adam, where are you? And, and that's also the Vayikra. HaKosh Baruch calls us the ayeka is, where are you? Where are you to take responsibility? I put you in this world with a mission, with a charge. I uniquely positioned you with a personality, with a skill set, with assets and talents. 
And are you doing me'ilah with it? Are you violating the holiness for which I put you here? Or are you using it to become the best version of yourself? Are you fulfilling the mission, the purpose for which I created you? Vayikra, Hashem is calling out to us. Like with Adam and Chava, Ayeka, where are you? Where are you to live the life you are meant to live? Where are you to take responsibility and own up when you make a mistake? Extreme ownership. That word Adam, not Ish, but Adam, are the same letters as Ma'od. Extreme ownership. When I gave this shear originally, it's a Shabbat Shubhidrasha, we talked about the book by Jaka Willing called Extreme Ownership that inspired a lot of the, the talk. Extreme ownership. Adam is ma'od. Ish is not ma'od. Adam. The Adam in us means we have the capacity for ma'od. We have the capacity for extreme ownership. If we want to turn our lives around, if we want to realize the best version of ourselves, it begins with Adam kiyakrav mikem and kiyachta, that when we make mistakes, we will make mistakes. Even those who take extreme ownership have to do so after. We all make mistakes. But when we make that mistake, do we come back with kiyachta ve'ashem? Is it kiyachta and then we blame? Or is it kiyachta ve'ashem? We make a mistake and then we own up and then we take responsibility for that mistake that we, that we made. Okay, I know it's hard to believe, but I had a lot of other things I wanted to tell you. A lot of other, let me just say one other thing. It's going to talk about Das. I'll tell you one last thing because it's not a partial share without a great Imre Chaim, without a vision of Rebbe. So the vision of Rebbe, the Imre Chaim, says the following. In the parsha it says, Im ola min zachar tamim. If you bring a korban ola, you bring it from the bakar, the cattle, zachar a male, tamim, pure. So the vision of Rebbe, as he's wont to do, offers a homiletical Jewish interpretation. He says, If you want to be an Ola, if you want to raise yourself up in your service of Hashem, you got to start from the morning. That your first thought has to be good. And what's the first thought? Zachar, you have to remember, Tamim Tiyeh so Yamaletically reinterprets the whole Pasuk, a Hasid Shavort. Im Ola Korbano, Im Ola. If you want to be Ola, if you want to be counted among those who rise up, who raise themselves, Minha Bakar, Minha Boker. From the morning, Zachar Tamim, Zocher Tamim Tia Mashem Lakacha. Remember, Tamim Tia Mashem Lakacha, we have to be pure with Hashem. And then he continues, Yakriv Osolir Tsono Lufne Hashem. We bring it, Lir Tsono, for Hashem's will. What does that mean? What are we really sacrificing is our ratzon. I want to do this. Hashem wants me to do that. What am I sacrificing? Not the animal. What I'm sacrificing is my ratzon. The mission of the second paragraph of Avos says that we should nullify our ratzon in the, in the face of Hashem's. By the way, we do that not because we're submitting or sacrificing. His ratzon is what will give us the pleasure we seek. Right? He's infinite, I'm finite. He's omnipotent, I'm limited. If he says to me, this is what's best for you, submitting what I think is best for me and following his will probably bring about what's best for me. So the Mishnah says, So when the Pasuk says, Bring the sacrifice, The Imre Chaim is interpreted to mean, What are we sacrificing? Our Ratzon. I want to do this. He wants me to do that. Hashem, I'm making a statement. I'm willing to sacrifice my Ratzon for your rutzon for me, I submit to you. Have a fantastic week.